This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U Mobile. 5G now with you. You're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. It's been over 48 hours since Malaysians voted in the 15th general elections, which culminated in a hung parliament as widely predicted. No one coalition has the majority, and as we speak, political parties are negotiating to form the next government ahead of a 2pm deadline set by Istana Negara today. While we don't know who will be in government, what we do know are the numbers that were won and lost in the elections based on how Malaysians voted. So so joining us to give context to the results of GE15 and also projections about where politics in the country is heading, we have Ibrahim Sufyan, Program Director at the Merdeka Centre. Ben, good morning. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks. Good morning. Now, GE15 had 21 million eligible voters in the electorate with a 74% turnout. I'd like to start with your views on that. How would you compare this to previous elections? What does this show? Well, in terms of overall percentage points, uh, the turnout in GE15 is slightly lower than what we were used to before. I think in 2018, we had a uh, turnout nearly 80%. Uh, but you know, having said all that, uh, I do note that there are different levels of turnout in different parts of the country. The turnout in Peninsula Malaysia was still uh, very high, in excess of 75 to 80%. Uh, although I do know that in the state of Perak, the turnout is slightly lower than 70%, and in, that is perhaps in account of people who didn't travel back uh, to, to vote. Uh, turnout in East Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak, is also lower than the national average, and that has been the case for many years. Uh, so I think, you know, just looking very quickly at the turnout numbers, it does indicate that uh, the people who voted in 2018 generally came out to vote as well as some of the new voters that uh, came on screen, those nearly 6 million people, but not everyone did. Mm. And therefore, it does uh, uh, indicate that the people who were automatically registered, who were previously eligible but didn't vote, uh, they still, uh, many of them still didn't come out to vote. Mm. Which parties benefited the most from those who did come out to vote based on, I guess, if you want to look at trends in terms of where they went, who, who benefited? Well, specifically is Perikatan National as well as PAS. Uh, we don't have detailed results as yet, but anecdotally, when I looked at some of the uh, polling stream results uh, from constituencies around KL, like in Gomba, in Ampang, uh, in Shah Alam, uh, we noticed that uh, there was a massive swing amongst young voters towards Perikatan National uh, in, the, in the election. And largely, it's because a vast majority of them are Malay. Uh, and quite clearly, in this election, Malay voters swung in favour of PN against Barisan National. So that, that was a prime uh, benefactor of the larger turnout. Uh, but there were also large turnout from non-Malay uh, Malaysians. Uh, and they, they you know, overwhelmingly voted for Pakatan Harapan. Now, you're on record admitting that GE14 projections in 2018 were off the mark. And back then, you underestimated the huge shift in support from Barisan National to Pakatan Harapan among Malay voters. Is, this, is it the same thing that's happening now in GE15 in that there was an underestimation of where the Malay swing vote would go, in which case this time they went largely to Perikatan National? Well, we noted that you know, we were running a tracking survey from just a couple of days before nomination and right up to election day. 
um, we did project internally, well, didn't really, we thought that the popular vote in favor of Perikatan Nasional among Malay voters was definitely in excess of 50%. Uh, what really made the figure hard to determine was the extent or the depth of the swing. Uh, you know, we estimated that probably Perikatan Nasional could get about 52, 53% overall. Uh, but I think, you know, looking at how the numbers panned out on Saturday, perhaps they reach about 55, 56%. So we were perhaps, uh, you know, a few percentage points off. And that is why when we released our, um, you know, final survey results late on Friday, we thought that, you know, so many seats became very hard to determine in terms of the probable outcomes. And so we had as many as 45 uh, seats uh, that or 46 seats that were too close to call. And, and that did pan out. We felt that the uh, number for Pakatan Harapan at 82 uh, was perhaps nearly there. And But we did anticipate that if the swing was 2 or 3% less for Perikatan National, then Pakatan Harapan would benefit a bit more. So we thought that Pakatan Harapan probably could get maybe a handful of seats, maybe four or five seats, but you know they fell short. And we can mm. see in the election results, there were many seats that uh, Pakatan Harapan lost by just you know a few hundred votes. Um, we'll get into some of those specific seats in a bit, but maybe more broadly, what do you see as the main trends driving this Malay tsunami for Perikata National, as some have described it? Um, what would you what would you say is the reasons why they've swung that way? Yeah, very clearly, even from the onset of the dissolution of Parliament, we noticed that a vast majority of the public, you know, especially Malay voters were not happy with the performance of the Malaysian government. And, and I think this in part is because the economic recovery that many had hoped for take place after the uh, end of the lockdowns, the pandemic lockdowns, you know, didn't materialize in the numbers that benefited or trickled down to the Malaysian public. While the government reported very strong uh, recovery growth rates I suppose it's not very uh, spread out evenly, it's uneven and many sectors that continue to employ people such as services, uh, the tourism industry had not really fully recovered. And so therefore, many people you know, continue to be in a very financially depressed state. Mm. And one of the things that we found when we were interviewing voters is in terms of how uh, negatively they viewed the government's efforts to fix the economy and that they felt uh, you know, lowered trust in terms of the capacity of the government to address this issue even in the coming uh, months and years ahead. So that uh, negativity surrounding with the relative unpopularity of the Barisan National Chairman and that I think became uh, a kind of gathering of storm perfect uh, somehow. And uh, many voters, especially the younger ones, do not really have an appreciation of the political parties or what they stood for. A lot of them are following personalities. And in contrasting between Zahid Hamidi or Ismail Sabri against Anwar Ibrahim and Muhyiddin Yassin, many of them uh, trusted Muhyiddin more uh, and therefore, I think, gave uh, support, lent support to him. So one gets a sense that, you know, many of the younger voters, uh, let's give these guys a chance, you know, mm -hmm. let's try uh, these guys for another five years.
I mean, we could see that there was a distinct difference in voting patterns across the east and west coast of Peninsula Malaysia in particular. We see the southwestern states, um, Pakatan Harapan scored of the majority of votes, while uh, Perikatan National dominate, dominated the northeastern states. I mean, how do you explain, I suppose, the different narratives that gain traction in these two parts of the country? Yeah, you know, the voting patterns, you know, closely mirror the political geography of the country. So Pakatan Harapan generally did well in areas where the number of Malay voters in each constituency was less than 70%. And this is because the non-Malay, the minority voters uh, overwhelmingly supported PH. But in areas where it was 70% or higher, and particularly outside of Klang Valley, it's very tough for Pakatan Harapan. That's one. And so Pakatan Harapan generally has support even amongst the Malay community in the west coast of the peninsula, basically from uh, Kulim or, or something like that, all the way down south to Johor, uh, just along the coast. But you know, it's interspersed by rural areas where Perikatan National made huge gains uh, against Barisan National. Uh, but there's also the other aspect of political geography is that the large influx of young Malay voters, particularly in the East Coast and certain parts of Pahang, has meant that um, you know, PAS was the prime benefactor from the swing that they already have perhaps a 35% presence in the, these constituencies and the influx of new voters, which amounted to perhaps 25 to 30%, and the overwhelming support uh, that they gave to PN allowed us to cross many of these seats. And that's why we saw seats like Indra Makota, seats like uh, Kuantan uh, and others in Pahang, you know, swung in favor of PN. So in the end, uh, we, we saw this coming and even in the earlier part of this year, we noted in our survey of young Muslims here in Malaysia that mm. there is an increasing uh, preference for socially conservative policies amongst young Malaysians. Uh, and that, I think, translated to support for uh, Perikatan National. And one of the things that um, I guess is striking for me is this prevailing pattern prior to the elections that um, seemed to overplay Barisan national strength. Why were the why were why did so many have the assumptions that um, BN was dominant? What kind of blind spots um, does that reveal about how we see the political landscape? Well, you know, in part, the per, the perception that BN was still dominant is just the momentum of history. You know, a lot of people, including us, you know, we were also. Uh, mistaken to think that Barisan National you know, continues to have strength. And this was particularly the case in 2018. What really happened here is that there has emerged you know, a viable alternative within the Malay community um, to a political party that's an alternative to champion the Malay agenda, Malay interest. And therefore, uh, Malay voters had no uh, qualms about giving their support to Perikatan National. In some sense, you know, the rebranding of PAS within the ambit of Perikatan National helped uh, soften the edges of PAS, you know, in the sense that while many, uh, you know, middle ground Malay voters may have had certain negative perceptions about PAS and the Islamist tendency and the, the kind of very harsh interpretation of Islam, uh, but by, by cloaking it under Perikatan National, uh, that ages had been softened a bit and made them more palatable. Hmm. At the same time, you know, uh, voters made the relative choice. I think they choose the least worst option. And the problem with Barisan National is that the, a lot of the leaders uh, that are up there in high office, uh, those that are still have controversial cases uh, hanging over them. Uh, and even though Barisan National tried to introduce new candidates, a lot of these new people 
were given the really tough seats to win. So it wasn't really exactly a case where the party, party tried very hard to rejuvenate itself. So that's, uh, I think, the case. Um, and so Barisan National has this aura of invincibility, but I think in this election, we really saw that it really had clay feet and uh, really had trouble reaching out to people and organising their campaign. I'm speaking to Ibrahim Sufian, Programme Director of the Merdeka Centre on the results of GE15. When we come back, how will the next chapter of Malaysian politics unfold? Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. I'm speaking today to Ibrahim Sufian, Programme Director of the Merdeka Centre on the results of GE15. Ben, earlier you mentioned that the Merdeka Centre had highlighted 40 Five seats that were too close to call. I noticed that one of those seats was um, uh, one of the seats that wasn't listed is Permatang Pau, and this is really one of the defeats um, that was the biggest shocker of the night for many of us. Um, I think Nurul Iza had widely been uh, seen as somebody who could retain her seat, and she didn't. Um, was this an outcome one that you expected, uh, and what do you think led to this loss? Well, the Pumatang Pau constituency, you know, was in our marginal list, meaning to say that we had the uh, projection that perhaps Nuru Iza could win with just slightly above 5% of the vote. And this is uh, one of those uh, uh, peculiarities of uh, November 19th, that the swing in Malay support for Brigata National was bigger than what we anticipated. No, we had anticipated, and I think we put it in the statement, that we think at least 60% of those voters who were undisclosed, probably would vote for Rikata National. But perhaps what transpired on election day was uh, it's more than 60%, perhaps in the range of 70% or 75%. And you know that's, that's just an assumption. There are some areas where the swing was higher and some areas where the swing was lower. And so you know she fell a uh, victim to the swing and, uh, you know, and lost. So the list that we have, you know, isn't isn't you know gospel. So some <laughs> some did uh, fall short of uh, expectation. Mm. In in that list of forty five seats, there were a number that we projected that maybe Pakatan Harapan could win, but uh, they did not. There were also some seats which we anticipated that Barisan National can hold on, like seats like Greek where Ashraf Wajdi contested, and yet he lost. You know, so so the depth of the uh, and, and 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 strength of the wave. Uh, was far higher than I think any individual candidates could withstand. Mm. Even you know Bagandato Zahid Hamidi lost with just near you know three to four hundred votes. So you can sort of see, uh, you know, the the big upwelling of uh, dissatisfaction towards BN. Now. Um- so Dr. Mahathir Muhammad, uh, contesting in Langkawi for the second time, he um, lost. What does it mean that he and his coalition completely failed to make a mark this GE15? I mean, is this the definitive era of the, is this the definitive end of the Mahathir era of politics from your view? I would think so. I mean, Dr. Mahathir is still an institution for the things that he has done for the country, both good and bad. Uh, and therefore, people will remember him as such. Uh, but I think from the perspective of electoral politics, you know, uh, this party, Pejuang, and their allies in that uh, little coalition called Garakan Tanai, I think it's game over. In the first place, you know, we think that small parties like that probably wouldn't have much of a chance uh, in an election like this because elections are very costly affairs. And most of these uh, candidates, you know, uh, couldn't muster the resources to contest. 
uh, especially in a situation where there's so many voters. So even if one wanted to campaign online, it still costs a, a fair amount of cash. So I think it's, yeah, it, that one is done, you know, mm. and we never really had any high anticipation that, uh, you know, that, that group of parties would do well. Even though in the lead up to the election, you know, we, we thought that, well, maybe the Mahathir brand name, you know, might, might carry some weight. And therefore, we put that seat in the too close to call range as well. Um, and, and so that, that is it, you know, the, the, he lost by some thousands of votes and, mm. and lost his deposit as well. So I think, you know, uh, yeah, time to rest. <laughs> Looking over at East Malaysia, Merdeka Centre didn't conduct surveys in Sabah, Sarawak, but you did have projections on how things might play out. What did you get right and what did you miss in your predictions of East Malaysia? I haven't, you know, to be honest, looked at it closely, but there were a couple of seats which we uh, actually spent time looking at <clears throat> because our researchers went to the field and spoke to many individuals there. And one of the seats was actually Putatan. You know, originally we had the seat uh, in favour of, uh, I think, Warisan or one of those parties. And But when we went there, we thought, wow, this this place, you know, something is really going on here. There's a, a great deal of contestation. Uh, and in the end, I think PKR lost by just 100 votes. Uh, the other seat was Penampang, where Daryl Laking, uh, deputy uh, president of Warisan, where he contested, but uh, and we thought that he had a chance. But when we looked more closely, we thought that, you know, it's too close to call and most likely Pakatan Harapan will have a chance of winning. So we revised that. The other thing is Sarawak. You know, in the early stages when we were uh, doing our projections, we felt that uh, GPS would potentially sweep, you know, anywhere within uh, up to 27 parliamentary seats. But when uh, our folks went up there and looked at uh, some of the seats in greater detail, we find that the uh, strength of GPS wasn't far reaching. There were many areas where Pakatan Harapan continued to hold sway. And that I think one more important thing is that uh, one couldn't really, shouldn't really use the last year's uh, state election result as mm. a proxy for the general election. I think Sarawakian voters, you know, and likewise, I think voters on this side of the pond as well, uh, have different calculations in terms of voting. They would vote a different party at the state. They might vote for a different, another completely different party at the parliamentary level. So what we notice is that you know, parties like PSB, which is a more uh, local-based uh, opposition party, did fairly well in the state elections last year, but uh, didn't do so well, uh, won only one seat in the state election, because I think many voters felt that they wanted to vote for a party that had a chance of winning at the federal level, mm. and therefore the votes went to PH. Mm. So there are those clear uh, calculations between federal and state elections, which is why we mm. can't really use one to extrapolate for another um, in that sense. Likewise, yeah. Likewise, what we will see you know, in the coming months when the six states uh, have their state elections, I think we might see different results as well. Because uh, in this particular election, you know, in one of the states, we as we were running the tracking survey, we noted that there is a big difference between you know what one party could gain at the federal election that took place on November 19, as compared to a notional state election. So take for example in Selangor, you know, Pakatan Harapan, you know, did okay, you know, but not so great because they lost six parliamentary seats, uh, and that is because you know voters. Uh, particularly Malay voters, you know, gave, uh, I think, P PN a greater chance. And that saw Pakatan Harapan lose in Hulu Selangor, Kuala Langat, and nearly lose uh, Kuala Selangor as well, nearly lost Kuala Selangor. And so, 
But I think the results will be slightly different in the state election. Mm. Uh, and we noted that in the surveys that we've done, that there are differences there. In the little bit of time that we have, I would like to get your thoughts on the negotiations that are currently taking place at the moment. Barca National had their worst showing in history, but it's looking likely that they will play kingmaker in forming the next government. What do you think could be the repercussions for UMNO if they become part of government, depending on which coalition they partner with? Yeah, I think first I wanted to say that, you know, what we're seeing unfolding right now, the massive loss experienced by Barisan National is part of a, a trajectory where, you know, one, when one sees uh, the decline of a dominant party, you know, in the old days, you know, UMNO was very strong we had, because, you know, as part of the government, they had uh, enormous resources and the government that they uh, presided over had, you know, enormous resources from our petroleum industry. That's no longer the case. You know, I think, you know, Malaysia is becoming a normal country where government can only pay its way by taxing citizens and corporations. So, so those eight days of, you know, special projects, mega projects, I think those days are gone. Uh, so regardless of who comes into uh, government right now, they have to, I think, look at Malaysia as you know a normal country where we can only run on tax money. Uh, and so, um, so Barisan National you know, won uh, about 30 seats, and that 30 seats is still sizable. Uh, and I think the considerations of the leaders of the party depends on where they want to take it. If they want to take Barisan National to regain and rehabilitate, of course, they they probably need to be in government because I think if the party stays in the wilderness, then its rival PAS, which is now nearly twice as large, uh, will, will be in government and will basically control you know, resources. Uh, and therefore, Barisan National will be at a disadvantage. So Barisan National has an option. They can be with government with either PH or with PN. Uh, but I think the choice for them to make is uh, between a rock and another hard place, because if they go with Prikatan National, that means they give a they give uh, a life not just a lifeline, uh, but resources and the ability to expand to their rivals for the Malay market share for mm. PAS. Uh, and they, being the smaller party, probably will be a junior partner and will get portfolios like agriculture, cooperative development, and environment, or something like that. Uh, but if they go with uh, Pakatan Harapan, they will probably be able to demand greater concessions, one. Number two, uh, they will face the challenge of explaining to the supporters and the Malay public at large about the partnership with PH and the whole implication of DAP and all that. But that's something that they have to face. You know, I think they've got deep problems. Uh, they have to get the house in order and be ready within the next five years to face the next general election where... Uh, you know, the voters have experienced change and therefore have no compunction about changing government again. We have one more minute, uh, Ben, looking at Pakatan Harapan then. They have failed really to secure the, a lot of Malay votes. Those that swung to them have swung elsewhere. What do they need to look at if they want to, I guess, stand a chance in the next elections? Well, Pakatan Harapan, you know, uh, made this mistake that they didn't realise that they have lost the right-wing element of the party you know, because the Malaysian politics is very odd. The Malay spec, the Malay segment of our electorate is more traditional and conservative than the more urban and minority base. And so Pakatan Harapan had that sweet spot in 2018 where it was straddled both, both segments with the assistance of Mahathir and Bersatu. With those two gone and along with leaders like Azmin, you know, even though they despise him, those guys uh, basically held that little bit of 
uh, Malay right wing and allowed them to cross over seats in 20, 2018. So they need to find leaders and cultivate them to go and address this segment uh, where Malay voters who are you know, way below 40 years old, fairly traditional in their outlook, you know, not, not liberal, not progressive, but conservative with a small C, and then capture that ground. Uh, so, so it's not game over for them, but they have to fix things and recruit the right leaders to translate their policies. Ben, thank you as always for the many rich insights you've shared this morning. I've been speaking to Ibrahim Sufyan, Program Director at the Merdeka Centre. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.